And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic Hello and welcome to the Race IndyCar Podcast Another Alex Polo victory And that's all for this week's episode of the Race IndyCar Podcast We'll be back the next time Alex Polo doesn't win a race Although that might be a long time, so we probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> but coming up on this week's show, we'll we'll break down a, a third Alex Pillow victory in a row as fourth in, in fifth races. We'll also look at some of the other key storylines of the Mid-Ohio race, where uh, Benjamin Pedersen caused uh, quite a few instances of controversy with his uh, fighting despite being uh, a lap down or trying to stay on the lead lap. We also had another Colton Herter episode of being on pole and not winning a race, which we'll talk about in a lot more detail than just that. We have Scott Dixon vaulting from fifth to second in the championship standings. We'll take a little look at his season and we'll crunch some of the key storylines that we didn't get to discuss on last week's episode of the Race Indy Car Podcast. So uh, I guess getting straight into this, um, we're, well, I personally am a big fan of mental health. So I feel like at this point, I'd be remiss not to introduce J.R. Hildebrand and give him exactly a minute to talk about Shane Van Gisberg and winning the NASCAR race or JR's <laughs> mental health might be disturbed and he might not be able to continue with the rest of the podcast. So God, I'm setting a timer, JR. You've got one minute to talk about how cool that was. One minute. One minute's not nearly <laughs> enough. Um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll just say I'm glad you brought it up because I was definitely going to bring it up anyway. <laughs> I know. But uh, yeah, I mean, just what a cool... I, I, I think that... It's it's awesome. I think just from a more zoomed out perspective, obviously on, on the pod here, and and anybody who's followed you know me on social media or or whatever for years knows that you know I'm a huge fan of of this type of thing just in general. You know, I talked about it a little bit last night. Just the fact that you've got Shane and and Jensen running this race in the first place. That you know you're I've I've sort of had the had this thesis for for probably the last five or six years or something in particular that as the media landscape changes and you know you, you see examples of this across all across motorsport drive to survive is an example of this where you know for for so long now we've pre like digital media pre streaming pre social motorsport the business of motorsport has been ruled by you know, television viewership and television ratings and television rights and all of this kind of stuff. And that, that in a way, when you, when you think about the way that motorsport worked back in the sixties and seventies, when you remember there being a lot of crossover, Mario, AJ, Parnelli Jones, the answers, Jackie Stewart, Jim Clark, all of these guys that just on their off weekends, they were out driving something else that like during that period of time, you know, the business of the sport supported that making sense for elite drivers. They made more money, Sponsors got more visibility, like like the the business of the sport was more regional and localized, and it was it was more of an event by event thing. Like to be a to be a to be a sponsor of a car in a major championship kind of depended on every individual race in that championship mattering to people, which the media landscape didn't really support it working that way. So you had it it was it was really that. Le Mans and the Indy 500 and the Monaco Grand Prix and like the single big events from all of these championships were the ones that people really cared about. Once you introduce TV to that fold, it it really packages a, all the events in a championship as being the thing that you know sponsors and and that that's how value is created by every event, the average viewership of a championship being really high. And so with media the way that it is now in social and and these kind of over the top services and shows and all of this kind of stuff you obviously still have for for nascar for formula one for indycar their primary revenue generation stream is still tv rights but you have all of this other stuff that is 
totally independent of that, that's turning people's attention towards the TV, basically, to to tune in and watch a race. And that's creating for this totally, in my mind, a, a very different landscape in terms of how value is created and where those multipliers of value exist within the sport. And so I think what, to me, what seeing Shane do what he did and seeing that be such a big deal last night across the motorsport spectrum to see it's, it's like a little microcosm of just how I think motorsport is fundamentally changing. Um, which is that things like this, they create a story that we don't know what's going to happen. Like when you're just watching a bunch of guys do what you're used to seeing them do, there's, there's, yeah, you might not know who's going to win the race and NASCAR, NASCAR and IndyCar are particularly like that. Maybe like, you you know, you don't really know how things you, you still don't know necessarily like who's going to show up and dominate a weekend or whatever. Obviously IndyCar, we're starting to seem a little bit more like <laughs> we, we know who's going to show up and dominate a weekend, but um, you know, with, with Shane and Jensen particularly coming and doing this and having it be a street circuit, that's kind of new for everybody. It was just this perfect storm of like, cool things, interesting things happening, interesting stories. And, and to me, just examples of how things are changing. Like, I think you could have had this exact same event and, and kind of driver lineup and whatever occur 15 years ago. And it wouldn't have had the same impact in terms of people just across global motorsports paying attention to it. And so, uh, for all of, I know I've gone over my minute, but, um, (laughs) For all of those reasons, uh, it's just a really, it was a really cool thing to see happen. And um, I, I'm stoked for Shane. I don't, I don't know Shane personally, but I've followed him for a long time and have always thought like, you know, this dude's like, he like goes, you know, enters like drifting competitions and stuff on his, on the off weekend. And, you know, just kind of one of these guys that seems like a, like a really true, a lot like McLaughlin, but, but a really true racer at heart, like would just get in, kind of would just get in anything and be good at it. So, um, I think, you know, the, the more that I've got, you know, gotten out of my early twenties or something, the more you kind of, the more I found myself rather than viewing other guys as, as competitors or something, you sort of root for guys that you really like and, and kind of have just that I don't know. It's just like a, a a very basic racer's spirit, you know. And and so uh yeah, I'm 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 just excited for everybody who was involved in it and 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 honestly it was just it was a great race. Like I would have you know, I I wouldn't always say this, but I would way prefer to watch that than to watch uh you know, Spielberg where there's you know, 500 uh, you know, or it was more than that. It was like, was it like they, they reviewed like two, over a thousand? Two, yeah, twelve hundred instances of drivers going off track and and having that dictate the results. So, um, you know, just an interesting weekend of motorsports, really, just to to kind of get a scope of all the various different things that are going on. I'd like to see the number of track limits penalties that NASCAR would get at Cota. That would be funny. I reckon that would be like in the, <laughs> probably in the millions over a course of a weekend. Like that would be that would be awesome. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. to tie to tie this whole whole thing back to to IndyCar, I guess the first thing I wanted to mention was part of the enjoyment of that race for me was kind of watching along with Scott McLaughlin on Twitter, uh, him, <laughs> him kind of live tweeting with a beer, kind of watching his pal do some cool the stuff. The mountains and, are still cold. I yeah, love that. yeah, exactly. So, so blue. Yeah. Definitely, definitely go and check out uh, Scott's tweets and. Uh, kind of on a similar theme I guess we're seeing a I guess a bit of a similar shift in in IndyCar although it's more of a thematic thing rather than just a a one you know one guy turning up to do one race but we're seeing you know Augustin Canapino come over and and Scott himself Scott McLaughlin himself coming to IndyCar and um, showing that real racers from other championships can be successful and and do a good job you know regardless of the team they're in or or the championship that they're racing in so it's been cool to see that and just finally on that note Trackhouse that that Shane Van Gisbergen was driving for have been linked to looking at an IndyCar future with Justin Marks who, I mean, 
if you, uh, I feel like we ban the term like real racer around quite a lot for a lot of different people. But if you were going to like pick one person in the world that that term kind of stands out for, then uh, I guess he'd be in the at least in the conversation as to like that guy is just a real like racer, and he's one of those guys who I feel like would turn up and race absolutely anything on any given weekend himself. Never mind. Um, kind of steering his teams in in that kind of direction as well. So we'll keep an, a, a close eye out to see uh, if that's something we'll see in the future. I don't think it's something we'll see next year, but definitely I think uh, within the you know within the realm of possibility over the next few years. So we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, getting back to IndyCar, Alex Palou, obviously another another victory. We're kind of running out of uh, superlatives or stats to to kind of. Uh, give you some new stuff on the pod to think about um, but I guess where I wanted to start with this JR one of the thoughts I had that kind of maybe separates this a little bit or or gives us a, a kind of new talking point to to look at this with was uh, where Alex Pelot started obviously started fourth um, but also his decision to start on the the harder tyre the, the black tyre and I kind of found myself wondering uh, maybe you'll disagree with this and we'll get your thoughts on this in a sec but I, I don't feel like in other seasons or potentially even in, in, in other races that Alex would have made that choice to start on the hard from fourth because you quite often get people sort of seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth making that kind of off-sync strategy, strategy decision to go with a different tyre and obviously it depends on track to track and why the drivers are doing this. Obviously they see stuff in the in the practices that kind of gives them an idea of what tyre they, they want to start on but I feel like if we kind of revert this back to qualifying, a lot of people when they look at IndyCar generally say qualifying doesn't matter or it's not as important as it is in some of the championships. And, you know, I guess Willie P is a great example of that. He's got more poles than any anyone else in IndyCar history, but he doesn't have as many wins as someone like Scott Dixon, who, you know, has been around as, as long as he has. So it might not necessarily be as, as important as Formula One, but I think it's a big mistake to say that qualifying isn't important in IndyCar. And I think the reason I'm kind of tying this back into Alex Pillow's decision is because the the, the kind of, he's he's qualifying on average around 3.5 every single week and that's giving him the opportunity to to a make those kind of off-sync strategy decisions if he wants to but also puts him in position to be the lead person on any given strategy which is where I feel like we've seen Dixon we'll talk about a bit later uh, a bit later on I feel like we've seen him finish in the top five loads of races this season but I feel like a lot of those have been where he's been second or third guy on his strategy and therefore just hasn't had that opportunity to really go for the win because he's not quite been there to to make that call or to to be in that position whereas Alex is just qualifying high enough at the moment that he always seems to be the lead guy on his strategy or he always seems to be capable of you know passing a couple of cars to be the the lead person on that strategy and I feel like the qualifying part of that is is you know really important is that something you've picked up on or something you you, you would tend to agree with Joe? Yeah, well, I, I think definitely in a general sense that's true. That when you're when you're in that position and you can dictate your strategy for obviously, like you said, just the further the further up you qualify, the more likely you are to be the lead car on that strategy. And at least then, at that point, you're in the catbird seat in terms of you know sort of making the best or making the most out of whatever that's however that strategy is going to play out. I think the, the other thing that comes to mind for me is that. He's got such a significant championship lead that it's almost enabling him, like everybody else who's behind him is thinking, okay, how do we offset ourselves against Alex and are and are very willing to take some strategic risks to do that. The flip side of that is Alex and the 10 crew have such a, such an enormous lead that they can also take lots of risks. And so the, in a way they're sort of negating the, the willingness to risk being off strategy by doing it themselves. And so this, that could end up backfiring for them. But like you said, when you're, when you're qualifying so far forward, oftentimes the, the difference between starting on red, starting on blacks, you know, whatever, there's going to be some trade-off there as, as we've seen in a lot of these races. I mean, it sort of has seemed to me this year in particular, for whatever reason, and maybe it's just because it has factored in to the outcomes a little bit more, or 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 maybe it's because we've just seen more drivers inside, like you said, inside the top, inside the top seven or eight that are, are starting on different tires and, and whatever. Kind of to your point, I mean, I feel like for the longest time in the IndyCar series, it's like you don't see you don't see anybody outside the top ten not starting on alternates 
you know, so so now we've we've had more of that mix up among drivers who are to start with generally in contention, you know, genuinely in contention, not not drivers that are starting 11th that end up in contention because they happen to take a flyer on the right strategy and it did end up just panning out. Um, And so I guess I, I say that mainly to say that it just doesn't seem like there's been that big of a difference, basically, in terms of the way the race has played out. You know, normally you think like, oh, the red is or the alternate is so much better on starts and restarts that a, a driver in the mix of red tired, you know, cars starting on blocks is just like a sitting duck for the first five laps of the race and is getting freight trained. We sort of haven't seen either side of that as much like that hasn't happened to the drivers that start on blocks when they're up there, it does just doesn't seem like for this year. I don't, I, I don't really know why that is, to be honest with you. Like we'd have, it would be an interesting question to ask a couple of guys the next time we've got them on the pot or, or next time one of us is at the track, just because that seems different than it normally is. Um, so maybe there's been a, enough of a compound change or enough of a construction change with the reds and blacks or, or whatever that, you know, we're just not seeing quite as much of that. I feel like there's been, more instances this year also already just halfway through the season on road and street circuits where it's like a toss-up of a used red versus a new black in qualifying that that even seems more frequent that we're having that discussion or that or that or that that discussion is having happening among the teams and drivers who are qualifying inside the top six um and so i i guess you know all of that is to say you know, this his qualifying performance, Alex's qualifying performance is creating for this scenario here that we're that we're seeing him in, which is as long as you actually have the pace, it seems like the the trade-off between the tires is such that you can kind of make it work either way if you've got the car underneath you and you can and you can do whatever you think you need to be able to do in terms of going long on blacks while everybody else is, you know, he's not, he's not been getting caught. There's a risk potentially by being off sequence to everybody else that you get caught out somehow on, you know, on the strategy side of that, uh, that, that just hasn't happened for Alex. Um, and, uh, I, I guess when it comes down to it, you know, he's, he's in a, he's, he's putting himself in a situation just by having such, such extraordinary pace everywhere he goes that it's kind of like it just doesn't matter once they once they get in the race like maybe they maybe they choose wrong in terms of offs like maybe they'll do this one time and he'll end up getting you know caught out and getting passed by three or four cars in the first stint and not be able to claw all of that back by the end of the first stint um and it just doesn't end up they've got so much pace that it just doesn't end up seeming to make much of a difference so you know i think for there are a lot of factors that go into how much his qualifying matters. The fact that they're making some different choices in terms of strategy and tire decisions and all that kind of stuff at the start of the races. And (laughs) I think it it just speaks to his dominance and how locked in he and the 10 crew is that maybe it still doesn't really make any difference. You know, it's just, it's just a talking point for us. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Yeah, so as JR quite rightly points out with that, um, we are kind of nitpicking a little bit to try and find something that we can 
kind of dissect from this because ultimately you're right his pace is the thing that is is underlying here and is the big reason why he's so successful let's just look at his uh, I guess his first stop and that first stint which is where he took the lead of the race from starting fourth on the grid he uh, Scott Dixon and Will Power who ended up being the top three in the race all started on the hard tyre and saved a little bit of fuel in that first stint got the clean air when all the drivers on the soft tyres pitted um, were able to use that fuel come in and pit and then take on a little bit less fuel in the pit stop I think and have shorter pit stops than and their rivals on the soft tyres, and that's how they kind of jumped ahead. But if we go back to amazing Alex Pillow, uh analysis in all of that, he had the fastest in-lap and the fastest out-lap of the whole race in that round of stops there. So if for any reason you think that the strategy was the key reason why he took the lead of the race, you're very wrong, because it was his his pace ultimately under was the underlying factor there, as well as the pit stop of his team, of course. But we can't just come to expect the the 10 team to deliver you know good stops in in key moments so that was a, a really important part of that um and and yeah uh, again you were totally right there to to point out that his pace was a key uh, a key aspect of all that and also um uh, i guess he had the fastest lap of the race of any of the drivers who kind of weren't on an off sync strategy so uh, felix rosenquist had by far the fastest lap of the race but he was obviously taken out of the first corner by Marcus Ericsson one of the reasons why Scott Dixon is second in the points because Marcus Ericsson uh, basically retired at that point from the race and, and finished last um, with that kind of lap one incident uh, that took him out but Felix and also Pato Award who we'll talk about shortly in a bit as well uh, were both kind of off strategy so set fast laps um, maybe they would have set fast laps anyway but the fact that they were off strategy uh, means that at some point they probably have cleaner air and um uh, a better opportunity to set a fastest lap rather than Alex Plow. I don't know, but uh, worth considering anyway. Uh, and just to move us on slightly from from where we're at, uh, I just wanted to round out kind of the the championship picture. He's 110 points in the lead now. Uh, if we kind of take the rest of the season as a whole uh, in terms of his rivals and what they need to do now to, to to try and overturn him, if we look at Scott Dixon, who's second in the points, he needs to outscore Alex by 12.33 points per race. So. That might not sound like a lot when there's 54 points on offer each race, but the fact that you need to outscore Palo in nine of the rest of the races by 12 points is a pretty significant margin. I quite like Joseph Newgard in there. He needs 13 points per race, and there's a good chance that Iowa's going to be kind to him with uh, with a bit of luck for him. So he's he's the one I'm kind of keeping an eye on now for a, for a turnaround because Marcus has really uh, kind of put a dampener on his whole uh, championship campaign with that... Um, that basic DNF there at the at mid Ohio, so we'll definitely keep an eye on the the championship situation. It seems it still seems too early to talk about it, even though Alex has got such a such a healthy lead. But uh, we'll definitely keep an eye on that. I want to move us on, JR, because one of the I guess kind of key talking points of the race was blue flags and how kind of back markers uh, settle into the kind of whole IndyCar race situation. We had. Uh, Benjamin Pedersen racing Alex Pillow really hard uh, for about 10 laps. It cost uh, Alex Pillow probably about four or five seconds, I think, in, in terms of his actual um, margin that he had over Colton Herter, but in, in general probably cost him quite a lot more time than that um, as well. Also, obviously, Pillow using more fuel and more tyres to try and pass Pedersen, more push to pass. So it has uh, bigger implications on the race than just that that one moment where he's trying to obviously get past. Uh, and then later in the race, we had... Um, I'm just trying to count through all of the people who had things to say about Benjamin Pedersen. We had uh, obviously Alex Pillow in the post-race press conference along with Scott, uh, Will Power and Scott Dixon. Will Power actually brought it up um, kind of like unprovoked. Like no one asked him about it. He just started <laughs> talking just about... Decided yeah, that that just, needed to get talked about. Yeah, yeah. Just got into the whole uh, blue flag thing, which he's talked about before at length. Um, I feel like that and the whole um, closing the pits under yellow situation is like Willie P's favourite kind of talking points regardless of whether anyone else is talking about them he just kind of brings them up when he wants to but um, he he raised that in the press conference um, yeah I, I, I feel like I don't want to misrepresent what you know kind of how that came about but he definitely wasn't directly asked anything about blue flags and kind of just started talking about that so that was interesting and we also had Scott McLaughlin and uh, David Malukas in the kind of immediate post-race interviews uh, both critical of, of Pedersen I, I guess there's two elements to this JR and I'll get your take on kind of how you feel about them the first is the fact that we have we don't have blue flags for the car trying to stay on the lead lap is one of the reasons that gives us so much strategy diversity in races it's one of the reasons why um indycar is so fascinating to watch um in in many in many situations um so 
I'll just immediately kind of reveal my thoughts there. I didn't have a whole lot of problem with what Pedersen did with Pelot and how he was racing there um, because he's racing within the rules to to try and stay on the lead lap. So uh, I guess my opinion of that was fine. The The bits that I didn't like particularly were when he was, you know, basically if he wasn't shoving cars off the track, then he wasn't leaving a lot of room for some guys when Pedersen himself was not the lead car on you know, being a lap down. So at that point, if there's a caution, he's not necessarily going to gain anything by fighting that hard. Um, and it kind of had a, I feel like it had a bigger sort of impact on the race than what people maybe think because he he held up Scott McLaughlin, but he also held up Pato Award at one point and uh, kind of was a bit of a roadblock in that whole situation. And if you were kind of off strategy, like Pato Award was where he did the three stop and wasn't kind of part of that train of cars at that point, I'm using this as an example, not necessarily exactly what happened, you know, minute by minute in the race. But if you're off strategy there and someone like Pedersen is dropping the lap time by two or three seconds a lap and you've got seven or eight cars there behind him, then if you're off strategy, then you're immediately just going to jump all of those cars, which is, you know, fair enough. Like you've gambled to be on a different strategy, but it also doesn't seem very fair that the drivers who maybe are taking the most logical route to trying to have a good result have just been like totally, you know, put out of sync by someone who's not even like going to get any benefit out of it. Yeah. So uh, I guess where do you, are you kind of happy with how he raced Polo? And separately, how do you feel about how hard he raced everybody when he wasn't in a position to kind of gain anything by doing it? Well, so my, what what really comes to mind to me is, is not going to directly answer your question, but is a little bit more just to provide some insight into why we have things like this happen. And and so the reason why this happens is because, because the rule is written hard and fast that there is no, they're not going to blue flag you. There is not, there is not like a mandatory blue until they call it over the radio. There's all this stuff. So that's how the rules are written, that you don't have to get out of the way until you're basically instructed from race control to get out of the way. Um, so you have that, which is, I guess, in my experience, almost a hundred percent of the time what the teams go by. So you, 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 I think we, one of the things that I found um, that did make me feel bad for Benjamin in all of this is that he, I'm sure has the team over the radio, not telling him to get out of the way. Like, and, and maybe he's got a spotter or a team instructing him to race these guys as hard as he can, because he's allowed to basically. And so as a rookie driver, I mean, I've been, I've been on the radio. I've seen, I've seen this happen where, you know, and, and you, so you kind of have to put yourself in the, in, you know, under the helmet there in that situation. Like he's a rookie. He doesn't, you know, you have a, you kind of know that you're sort of screwing these guys up, but when you're driving, you don't, always really know like you're looking in your mirrors going down the straights and you're thinking well they're not right on me like they're four or five six ten car lengths back like maybe that's just because you're sort of in that situation you're 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 waiting for the team to kind of tell you what's going on or you're waiting for some additional context for like what's happening because otherwise you're just driving your race trying to run your lap you know the foot cars were clearly not that great this weekend so it's not like he's having a super easy time just getting the thing around the track in the first place um there's a lot for him to be paying attention to and so i I guess I, i bring that up mainly because i feel like in these situations uh, the drivers particularly when they're rookies or when they're young or when they are kind of you know at the limit of their bandwidth you know maybe one way or the other just taking a lot of things in other drivers fans other teams you're you're like expecting a lot from that driver to kind of have an awareness for the the grand picture of what's going on here and how this is affecting other people's races which i just think is a little bit unfair like for more experienced guys, it's l- much less unfair, right? Like for when you see, and 
And that's part of why you just don't see it happen. Like we've seen, we've seen this occur at various points during the year. Like I, I mean, I distinctly remember Pato at Long Beach, even after the crazy race that Pato had had, you could, you could have thought, well, he, he just, he was just in, you know, effort mode and was going to just race everybody hard as hell all the way to the end of the race. When he got caught up, caught up among the leaders, he just got the hell out of the way and let those guys race like he he knew probably just on his own without anybody having to tell him or whatever that the right thing for him to do was just to to move out of the way and that you you by being in the series and by by being the driver you know sometimes it's on the other end of that you know pato certainly in that situation is more frequently the driver that's catching up to guys that he's hoping should get a blue flag so he's he's seen both sides of that experience um, you know, you do build up an understanding and awareness for how this is affecting other people and what's going on here. And, and that you, you recognize that there's a bit of a respect factor and a, um, more long-term like, you know, graciousness that you can kind of, you know, build up some, you know, build up a little bit of a piggy bank of by, by doing this with guys and, you know, responding a certain way when ultimately you're just, your race has kind of gone to hell or is, or is just like unimportant in essence in the big scheme of things. Um, I just think it's, I think Benjamin is not yet in that spot where he's built up that awareness for himself of what's going on. And so, I think it's because I think it's likely that he didn't, it wasn't like he had his team coming over the radio telling him like, Oh, Hey, Hey, like it's time to move over. And he just wasn't or something. I, I would almost bet not because it's Foyt or anybody else, but just because I think this is generally what goes on. Your, your team is just looking out your strategist, your engineer. They're just, you're just, they're just looking out for you and your race. Like they don't give a shit what's going on with, with everybody else. Um, so, so I'll say that, I guess, just to start with that there are some it's this is not this was not I, I in my mind, this was not a situation where Benjamin was just like hell bent on screwing up everybody's race because he's super selfishly, you know, doing what he's doing. I think he's just in a position as an IndyCar driver that he now until after the race, um, you know, where he I'm sure became intimately aware of how much he was affecting, <laughs> you know, everybody else's situation. Um, I, I just think that some of what, some of what's going on there in that dynamic while, when you're in the car and how much you're at times relying on your team and your spotters and whatever, and, and, and how those, those things do not, the communication that he's getting for, you'd think that from experienced and veteran teams and strategists and all this kind of stuff that they would be playing ball with these situations. I think the reality of it is just that the the rules don't dictate that they have to. So kind of usually they don't. Um, we, we obviously know that, you know, you, you, I think every driver does end up learning over time. Like I learned this the hard way in some situations early in my career, that it is actually just up to you. Like that the relationship that you have with other drivers based on how you race them on track and the interactions that you have with them on track, you can't, even if it's not your, even if, even if you're being told by the team, like you should just race them hard as hell. Like that's actually just up to you. And, and you need to take as a driver, you need to take responsibility and, and be accountable for how you're going to, kind of be perceived and how your actions are going to be judged and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think, uh, unfortunately for Benjamin, that's the lesson that he just learned the hard way over the course of this weekend. And I hope for his sake that, you know, this was because, because Benjamin's a good kid. Like he, he wouldn't be doing this. I agree. I agree. Egregiously on purpose. So, um, you know, I think that he's he's probably gotten more than enough flack for for doing what he did. Now, just to talk about it in the context of what, like if it wasn't him, like if that was Santino, we'll we'll take a slightly different. You know, he's we're swinging to the other end of the spectrum. Um, I think everybody Santino's done enough races. He's done enough. He he was running you know twenty fifth or whatever, so he was kind of potentially in this type of scenario. Um. 
And not because Santino, if this was Ryan Hunter Ray, if this was Renus VK, if this was Connor Daly, if this was any, anybody at the back of the pack, um, or or that was kind of in this window or whatever, having a you know not having a great race, um, you'd absolutely say that you know this deserves some serious relegation, basically in terms of what was going on because it was just totally unwarranted and it did screw up people's races. And I'm kind of with you that. Because of the way that IndyCar works, and that the and that there are, if we're not going to distinguish between situations where a driver is, you know, going a lap down because they've already pitted or are slightly off strategy to the leader, if if we're not going to pay attention, I mean, because you could sit there and say, all right, well, if you're just on the same, maybe you have some difference of how this works. If you're on the exact same strategy, you've pitted the same number of times, and you're just slow enough that you're legitimately going a lap down by like halfway through the race maybe you would treat that differently if you're if you're willing to dig into that for every race to kind of define whether or not it's a strategy thing or not that you're going a lap down prior to the last stint in the race um i think if we throw that out the window i'm sort of in favor of letting guys race the leader to try to stay on the lead lap i guess just because 50, at least 50% of the time, like there is a legitimate chance that, that because that if they just manage to stay ahead, that they will, they'll end up staying ahead and won't get screwed by a yellow. Like sometimes it's not, you know, in this situation for Benjamin, it was like, you know, praying for a yellow to catch back up to the rest of the guys in the lead lap. There's a lot of times where you're momentarily at risk of going a lap down and you'll get totally screwed by a yellow when your pace isn't actually that bad. Um, I, I totally agree that once you're, once you, once, once somebody in the lead lap has like stuffed it in on you, you got to just let them go. Like that's ridiculous to be racing the leader harder than you'd be racing, you know, a car for position. Um, and that if there's something to consider here in terms of the blue flag situation, again, I think it absolutely has to be. Once everybody's made their final stops at, at a bare minimum, once everybody's made their final stops, I think that the blue flags have to become more aggressive and become command flags because it, like at that point, there's just, there is nothing that's going to help your race turn around. Like you said. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, we, we have this conversation frequently, I guess that's, that's, that's my position in terms of, I think at least one change that I, I believe should be made. Uh, in terms of how this all works out. Totally agree. And the push to pass element is one that always gets raised. And that was one that uh, Scott Dixon raised in the post-race press conference as well. That taking away the push to pass for these cars like later on in the race is a, a good idea. I guess the the difficult, in, in defense of IndyCar, I mean, I guess the difficult part is how complicated this all gets because like if you just write something in the rules, you have to consider there's races like Gateway where drivers go two laps down from, from a pit stop. And like, are you really going to have someone in race control sat there responsible for blue flagging cars who has to kind of chart the lap time of every car and work out, is this guy going fast enough to deserve to stay on the lead lap or, or sorry, to, to, to fight to stay two laps down or one lap down or, or whatever? Um, or are they actually slow and they need to be blue flagged? Um, you could have a situation where you've got three or four cars to, to monitor in that situation to watch. Um you know, it's really difficult. You know, ideally, you would say, uh, I think I, I would say anyway, that there there should be an element of decision making from IndyCar whereby if someone is a second or two seconds or three seconds a lap slower, you know, than, than the leader, then there's, an, there's a, a basically a permission in the rules there for IndyCar to say, right, we're going to blue flag you and get you out of the way because you're just not going fast enough that even if you cycle to the lead of this race, via staying on the lead lap uh, in some ridiculous or outrageous scenario you're not actually fast enough to stay there and you know be in contention to win the race and i guess the the rival point for that is that that car has every right as any other car to try and finish 15th instead of 16th because every point in the championship counts you know it could make a massive difference at the end of the year with the 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 leader circle payments and all that kind of stuff um but i think there's just i think like a lot of things we end up kind of circling back to with rules in IndyCar there just needs to be a little bit more kind of I guess a little bit more thought and conversation into it but also just kind of freeing up IndyCar to make some 
some more decisions on these kind of things, um, which is kind of like the opposite way that a lot of championships go, where they sometimes try to like legislate for more things. And I'm kind of saying they should maybe legislate a little bit less because they need to have more interpretation. But I think you can take it rule by rule and there's some areas where IndyCar could legislate for a lot of things and write stuff in the rule book. We've spoken about a lot of them recently, but I think there's other areas where they could maybe just offer a different option as to what could happen in a certain scenario and give themselves that ability to say, you are holding people up. You need to be moved out of the way quicker. Yeah, and I, I guess I, I agree with that. I think that, like we talked about, there are you you could refine this down to there being some aspects of these situations or or particularly you know like like we've i mean like i've said a million times like once everybody's made their final pit stop at that point just nothing's going to change in terms of you working your way back on a lead lap unless you've uh, unless kind of to your point it's really evident that you've just had some misfortune and have ended up there and actually have the pace but at that point we're not having this conversation anyway at that stage because those are not cars that are getting people's way those are those are cars that are like You've got Pato trying to pass the leader to get back on, you know, it's like, and so, so this is just a non-issue in those kinds of scenarios. So there are, there, I think there are some bracketed like things that are happening or circumstances that exist on track where it's, where you could pretty legitimately say like a hundred percent of the time that we get to this point in the race, you could implement this, you know, riff on blue flag rules and it's never going to screw anybody basically. Um, I think the other, because like you said, especially when you think about oval racing and that this happens on road courses occasionally, if you're depend if you're dependent on figuring out what the ebb and flow of all of the drivers is and where they're at relative to the leader and on the lead lap. And if, you know, is their pace even actually indicative of where they're at in the race? Like that's hard to tell a lot of the time. Um, you know, you're going to need four extra people in race control that are intimately familiar with current IndyCar racing and all the drivers and all the teams and the exact strategies and all the scenarios. Um, you know, I think something that for this type of situation, which does happen on occasion, this what, what some version of what just went down happens, you know, between five and 10 times a year, like with somebody at some point, um, I think an equally powerful, you know, move here would be go recruit Scott Dixon to have a, to, you know, hold court over a driver's only discussion and just go talk to everybody about this. Like, Hey guys, we all have this conversation. Here's what's going on. Here's how this works out. Let's, let's come to a more of a gentleman's agreement about how we're going to do this. If you're in this situation, like, I wish that when I was a rookie that Dario Franchitti had gotten up in front of everybody and just talked through some of these things because otherwise you end up in situations like this where it takes a it takes a, a really hard and unfortunate learning experience for guys to even realize that you know what they're being told about this from their team is not how they should address it in in reality. Yeah, I think it's always it's always a good thing. Discussion is always a good thing, and quite often the way we get into these scenarios is by a lack of discussion. So, I would definitely uh, I'd definitely vote through some of those changes you've suggested there, Jr. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I want to kind of move us on to, um, I guess, just a little bit more kind of cleaning up the, the race and how everything played out. And I think the only thing that could have really changed the top three was was Colton um, and and kind of what happened to him. So um, in his, uh, he, he had a pit stop issue basically where he, he you could clearly see from the onboard that he pressed the pit lane limiter button, uh, but nothing had happened. And uh, I guess we'll add it to the list of things that happened to Colton. Or at least pre- pressed in the vicinity of the pit lane button anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. But I think if you look, if you look close enough at the video, I think you can see him press the button. Yeah. I guess the, how hard he presses it and stuff like that. It's, I guess, a bit difficult to see, but um, I think you can see him get his thumb. Because the, the the big thing at the time, I thought, was, oh, he's messed this up because he was literally crossed up going into the into the pit lane and he, he was, like, fully hands crossed over, like, trying to save the car um, and then immediately got, or not immediately, but almost immediately afterwards got a pit lane penalty. So you're immediately thinking, well, he didn't get his hand to the button in time because he's, like, crossed up trying to save the car or from like, smashing over- into the wall. he, like, overcooked it coming in. Yeah, yeah. right, right. But um, when you saw the replay and the onboard, you can see he gets he does get his thumbs incredibly. He does manage to get his thumb to it. So um, an interesting one, I guess. We'll maybe maybe we'll hear more about that in the in the kind of um, in the following weeks and stuff after that race. But um, yeah, without that, I think he probably could have been in the top three. Uh, obviously, another another race where uh, a good result has slipped away. I don't think it was as clear cut. Well, it definitely wasn't as clear cut as last week where he would have won that race if he hadn't have had his, his problems at Road America in terms of the last stint where, um, he, yeah, he, he, he was passed by Alex Plow and a host of other cars um, while he was trying to save fuel. But um, I think a, a podium was definitely on the cards here and, um, you know, who knows what would have happened if he had a bit more pace in the final stint to to catch Plow. But ultimately that, that penalty really um, undid his race. I think quickly just wanted to mention... Uh, he had a strategist change ahead of this race, second time this season that's happened. Rob Edwards came on board. I think it was a really interesting kind of insight and I'm kind of talking around this rather than uh, declaring or, or pointing fingers at, at anybody. But um, when asked about the the strategist change, uh, Colton said that he kind of hinted that it was to do with a little bit to do with Road America, which... Um, if you've if you read my feature with Colton ahead of the race on Sunday, you will have seen uh, Nathan Rourke, his engineer, talking about that and kind of saying that it was nothing to do with. Um, well, it was a, it was basically a, a team mistake that had led to that issue. So I, I guess I took away from that that the fuel number that went into the car was not the right amount of fuel. Basically, that it had been miscalculated, and that that is ultimately what led to him kind of having to save more fuel in that final stint than, than anybody else. And when Colton was asked if the strategist change had something to do with that, he, he kind of hinted that it did have a little bit to do with that. So I guess my question to you, JR, is like that feels like if I'm a strategist at Andretti and kind of looking over my shoulder every time I kind of make a, a big call or a big decision in an important part of the race, and I just wonder from like a culture perspective, is that the same as what would happen at somewhere like Ganassi or Penske where... I feel like that change would be made in the off season, um, but I, I think my my vibe from somewhere like Andretti, Ganassi, certainly McLaren, where they have this whole kind of people focus thing they, they that they've implemented or or refined and increased with Gavin o, Gavin Ward coming in um, and you know really kind of focusing on trying to improve people and um, extract the best out of them. I just wonder if if I'm at Andretti, do I feel like um, you know, I'm getting that same level of support and, um, you know, reassurance. Yeah, definitely. I want to just briefly touch on just to describe a little bit of uh, Colton's in, you know, into the pits situation there. Um, Cause I thought the same thing as you, because they just showed it like at a glance at first that, you know, it seemed like, and, and Townsend sort of said on the broadcast, like maybe there was some water that he came in hot and that's why he was crossed up. What actually happened was he went for the button and then ended up being crossed up very shortly after that, like almost wrecking in the pit lane and then realizing that he had not gotten the button, went back to the button. At that point, he had already exceeded pit lane speed in that brief period. The reason that that happened, just for anybody who was watching it, is that the way that PLC work or the pit lane you know, control, speed control works is that from either first or second gear, you can engage 
the pit lane speed. So you hit the button, it immediately shuts the throttles off just automatically. And so basically what you do as the driver in that situation is you, you have some throttle on to basically tell you, so you're, you're braking going into the, to approach the cone or whatever, the pit lane speed cone, you've already hit the button to slow down to pit lane speed while you're on the brakes, getting the car down to 50 or 60 miles an hour, depending on the track, you've got some throttle on basically to tell you when you've actually to, to let you know when the throttles kick back on, when you feel a little bit of throttle input, then you know that you've gotten below the pit lane speed because the car is this ECU and the systems of the car are allowing your throttle input to like override its, its system. And that in essence, when you're, when you're really on the limit doing that, you'll, you might be all the way off throttle all the way until you get, you know, you hit the button and then you'll go full throttle. Like basically you, you drive through the pits, every driver will drive through the pits and this, because it's instructed by the, manufacturers like they program the pit lane speed so that you're at full throttle to stay right at pit lane speed like if you're not at, if you're going down the pit lane not at full throttle it like screws up the programming for making sure that you're actually right at 50 or 60 the whole way down the pit lane to maximize what's available to you speed average speed wise through the pit lane so basically what happened there for colton was he hit the button then assuming that he's in he's engaged the pit, the limiter he went to full throttle and it instead of it going to full throttle and limiting what it gave to him it actually just went to full throttle and so he almost like looped it um you know because he you know i mean that is not a place that you'd want to be suddenly at legit full throttle driving down that sketchy you know pit lane entry so just for why that looked as cra- as hairy as it did after he had gone to the plc um that's what goes on there to, to talk about this strategy change up. I mean, I guess I think, you know, without getting deep into team culture, there is a version of this or there's a there's there's a potential scenario here, which is basically like Colton's season is kind of just like effed at this point anyway. And so between him and the team and Nathan seems like kind of a lock on that timing stand. So that doesn't really seem in question. Colton's on a long-term contract there. His F1 options are are dried up, so that's not like going to happen. Um, you know, you you could consider this just they're they're willing to experiment here to figure out basically where they need to be with him going forward. Like the team is committed to Colton, team's committed to Nathan O'Rourke. I think being Colton's engineer, that's not a question mark. So they're because he's not in championship contention. They've already had some things go wrong this year. They're already in this almost like a rebuilding phase um, with the 26. You could just chalk it up to that, that like they're they're sort of willing to make changes or decisions that you might not make if you were another team or 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 if or even even just within their own squad, if you were really genuinely in championship contention at this point in the season, but because they're not. They're back in. They're back, kind of where I feel like Colton was like two years ago or something. Which is just, we just need to like throw a couple of weekends together and get our groove back and show that we can go out there and like dominate over a weekend. At some point between now and the end of the season, you'd almost you'd almost consider that a success. Basically, like if they just if they win a race this year, you know, and and get everything right at some point, that's that's like kind of getting you know getting things back on the straight and narrow for this team, which I think is, is basically the focus. Um, you know, I think you, you could dissect it a little more and say, yeah, there, there doesn't really seem to be a, let's all work together to like support each other and right our wrongs and have a, have, have there be space for discussion and learning what we did wrong there and, and being able to, correct that decision-making pattern for the next time around. It, it does seem like, you know, you talked about um, Aero McLaren and Gavin Ward, like there certainly are some teams within the paddock that, that feel a little bit more like that. Like if you have a strategic error um, that, you know, rather than it being a deep dive that ends up with somebody kind of internally getting blamed and moved around that, you know, you end up, with more of a like, okay, well, let's 
let's trust that everybody's everybody's smart, everybody knows what they're doing, everybody's experienced, that we've got the right people in the right places, and we just need to like improve on the decision making process that existed, that created that that and it resulted, I guess, in that error. Because in these types of situations, when you've got a fuel number and you've got you so you've got an engineer, you know, the primary engineer who is so Nathan is like intimately involved in all of these strategic decisions because he's looking at all of this stuff and has an opinion about it. And he knows he's he's more aware probably from a telemetry perspective in terms of what's going on and how the car is working and how the reds are versus the blacks are lasting or whatever than than the strategist does. And there's usually somebody else who's handling the fuel number. So there's somebody out there's a the assistant performance engineer or whatever who's actually crunching the numbers to figure out what the and then the strategist is just kind of taking those inputs and making a call in terms of what so the strategist job there at least in my experience is is usually a pretty simple decision making task like it's it's sort of like can we which lap can we make it to and and so when are we going to pit and that the only the only other wrinkle in that is that the strategist is, is also the one because they're the one on the radio that's responsible for actually communicating to the driver like what the driver needs to be doing so that that is i wonder where this kind of went awry is like maybe scott harner wasn't as on top of making sure colton knew what he needed to know to make the number to get to the lap that he needed to get to and then at that point you know, either at that point they were already screwed, like the fact that they had pitted a lap earlier than everybody else was just going to put them in a spot where they were having to save enough fuel, or that he didn't save, didn't realize, or didn't know because the communication wasn't there that he. But but I guess that like any version of that seems like a solvable, like a a, a reconcilable kind of thing. Like that's just okay we need to do a better job then of communicating to the driver. And so what, you know, I need to know X, Y, and Z sooner. You guys need to be more on top of telling me as a strategist that this is going on. I, there's another aspect of this, which is that just fundamentally Brian Herta and Scott Harner and Rob Edwards are all very different guys that have very different. I mean, even just when you hear them on the broadcast, different sound, different tone, different kind of vibe over the radio. Um, that's just fun. Like I, I, I would be surprised if that has nothing to do with this. Um, you know, Rob is a little more like Brian, I think, in terms of his just general kind of demeanor and and attitude and tone. Um, I love Scott Harner. Like I thought, I, I worked with him at Point and thought he was great. He's like just a hardcore kind of like racer. He's been in the industry for a really long time. So. But it may it, like I think it's probably it's likely in this situation that it's a combination of these factors. Like they had something go wrong. Maybe they weren't really like jiving a hundred percent. Just their personalities, anyway. And so, um, and that there's kind of no risk at this point from a results or championship perspective for them to change things up. So um, you know, I, I guess I that's a little like you know, lengthy in terms of everything that's going on here. But ultimately, I think these these decisions are more complicated a lot of times than they look from the outside. Yeah, totally agree. And it's possible that Scott Harnard, you know, wasn't the person to blame for what happened at Road America. It's just that when Colton was asked about whether the change had been linked to that, he kind of hinted that it was. So uh, I guess you can only add two and two together and try and get four from what's going on there. And it might be right that, as you said, the, the kind of vibe of the whole situation was just... Uh, you know, it looked more beneficial that there was a change there than, the, than there wasn't for, for whatever reason. But um, yeah, we're definitely not accusing uh, Scott of doing anything wrong there because we don't know exactly what happened. But all, all we can do is kind of talk a little bit about, you know, what's happening there and, and why that might have been. So uh, an interesting scenario. We'll keep an eye on that for the rest of the season and we'll we'll maybe find out a little bit more about that as we go on. I just want to quickly wrap up some stories before we finish our, um, I guess we'll start with Scott Dixon. He called his season a bit meh, which... Um, I felt like it was harsh on himself. Uh, did he say that exact same thing at Mid-Ohio last year too, though? It possibly did, yeah. But I feel like last year was... I feel like this season's been better because he only has Long Beach where he was taken out, which, you know, totally out of his 
out of his control. And apart from that, his worst finish is seventh, which is a, a better worst finish than Alex Blow has. He just obviously doesn't have four victories to to stack up. But uh, second was his best finish at, of the season at Mid-Ohio. And uh, I definitely feel like he deserves more credit than what he's been getting. I was listening to Davey Hamilton on the on the radio, uh, the IndyCar radio network for, for practice. And he, he said that he felt like this wasn't a very Scott Dixon season, but I'd argue on the contrary, this is a very, very Scott Dixon season. The, the only thing that's been missing so far has been a victory or, or a couple of them. But, you know, we've seen people like Will Power only win one race in a season and that could come in the second half of the season. It's just that we're, we're measuring everyone by different parameters because of what Alex Blow has been able to to achieve in this first part of the season. So I thought it was interesting and important to mention Scott for, for the performance that he had and, I guess to offer a, an alternative opinion to what's out there that I think he's having a, a really strong season and to be to be in the top seven in every single race apart from one where you were taken out by another competitor is you know looks like a pretty strong season to me and might be a season that would put you in the championship lead if it wasn't for uh, your pesky teammate delivering uh, a victory what feels like every single week of the season which is also very frustrating for us sorry Alex but uh, we're, we're going to have to have some different winners here soon to to keep our, our podcast interesting so uh, yeah we'll, we'll we'll fingers crossed for for some more competition for Alex Blow in the second part of the season I wanted to wrap up a few more kind of items that came out either over the weekend or in the build up to the weekend that we didn't manage to get to talk about on the pod obviously um, we've been we've talked a lot about Agustin Canapino through the season and he lost his engineer Charlie Ping before the before the race weekend so that was an interesting move considering how successful those two guys have, have kind of been together over the first part of the season and we'll kind of keep an eye on how that story evolves also Zach Porter on the performance engineer on Callum Eilat's car was also released by the team as well as they uh, talked about having a, a technical shake-up so uh, we'll keep an eye on how that evolves David Malukas was another person who um, Nathan Brown from the Indy Star did an interview with him ahead of, um, I think it was ahead of the first practice on Saturday where he said that he's very unlikely that he'll be returning to Dale Coyne next year and he'll be looking for a new team. So we'll be uh, we'll be watching where that might be because uh, I guess Andretti and Ganassi might be two options of bigger teams that David Lucas would like to drive for. Whether he's done enough to earn those drives in the first half of this season is another kind of topic of conversation altogether, I guess. Um Speaking of Ganassi, uh, Marcus Armstrong had a, had another good race. You can read a feature with him on the race, uh, an interview with him from from last week. Um, we'll keep an eye on him because there's rumours that he's either close to or has already secured a full-time seat at Ganassi for next season. So we'll keep an eye on that. I don't know if that's uh, 100% true. My, uh, my understanding is that nothing's been decided there yet and nothing's happened, but there's definitely some strong rumours coming from the paddock over the weekend that he's, uh, let's say, closer than ever before to securing that seat in a, a full-time year and we can't go through the whole podcast without mentioning two of the stars of the race really um, or, or race weekend I should say uh, in the sense of uh, Graham Rahal who uh, managed to qualify second for for that race which was pretty incredible given it was his best result since uh, 2017 I think um, a, a real strong weekend in terms of qualifying and practice for for Ray Hall. the race didn't quite go to plan with a a fuel sensor issue um, for for Ray, for Graham in in the race, which kind of dropped him back. Um, he had another slow stop as well, didn't he? Which didn't really help things um, and pushed him back. But uh, Christian Lungard was fourth and continued his strong sophomore season. And obviously Pato Award, we've mentioned uh, in a roundabout way a couple of times on the pod, who came from twenty fifth to fourteenth in that first stint, uh, tried a three stopper, spent quite a lot of the race in the top three because of it, um, and then had to make a late pit stop which moved him down the order, but managed to to fight his way back up to eighth. So an impressive performance for him, given that he'd stalled in qualifying while having the fastest time of the first group. So he definitely would have advanced and been likely um, fighting for a pole or at least in likely a contender for the fast six uh, before that had all kind of happened and he'd stalled in the in the kind of uh, wet grass. Where's... Um, Where's Pato at in terms of qualifying? Uh, his worst qualifying so far is 10th at Detroit. And apart from that, he's been in the top six in every race uh, heading into mid-Ohio. So we were definitely expecting him to be strong there. And you'd mentioned him in last week's part as being someone to watch out for along with the other kind of Aaron McLaren guys after the race they had there last year. So we kind of saved the biggest story for last in, in a certain way after Simon Pagino's huge somersault in crash in practice at mid-Ohio it feels like so long ago now and maybe that's why it's not quite as fresh in our minds but Simon with that huge crash he got to the end of the the longest straight on the mid-Ohio track uh, got a little bit airborne headed into the corner he had no brakes and 
was just not able to get the car stopped. He, he tried his very best to, to make something happen there, but he was already kind of airborne, heading towards the gravel at the exit. And once he touched that gravel, the car was just shot out of a cannon. I think it was nine times he, he flipped and ended up upside down at the barrier. So he was very lucky to come away unscathed. Simon seemed very fine in, in himself um, when he was interviewed and, and when he was talking. But, you know, after a, a crash that big, it's no surprise to see that the the IndyCar medical team didn't clear him for qualifying later that day, which is only a couple of hours after the, the crash. And then also didn't clear him for the race either. So Connor Daly stepped in and uh, a big surprise for him because he'd been at Mid-Ohio watching the action, but hadn't brought his gear or anything with him. He wasn't expecting to be a, a stand-in. Um, you know, very recently parted ways with Ed Carpenter racing and didn't do the Road America race, so he'd missed the last race. And um, I guess his mind had probably switched to focusing on 2024 and how he might get back to IndyCar. But uh, the the return came a lot quicker than he was expecting. His mum had to drive his helmet and some of his equipment up from Indianapolis all the way up to mid-Ohio. But everything arrived in time. He was able to borrow one of the mechanics set of overalls and uh, deliver a, a decent performance in 20th. I think he could have been a bit further forward. He was involved in that gaggle of kind of 11th through to, to 20th, that, that group of cars and uh, potentially could have been a bit higher if uh, strategy and stuff like that had played out a little bit different. It's kind of caught in a train, but did a relatively good job and seemed quite freed up by the car. He enjoyed driving it and seemed uh, quite at home in the car. So uh, we'll keep an eye on Connor and how his season might play out. Maya Shank definitely started to make some moves in the silly season after a, a pretty poor season by uh, by their standards. And as, as we've written quite a few times on the race, we're expecting Tom Blancvist to be in a seat at that team next year. And how Simon and Helio Cachaneves fit into that merry-go-round is uh, what we'll expect to, to find out fairly soon. I think August will have a, a public kind of confirmation for that. So that was one of the big storylines of the weekend, Simon's crash, and we wish him all the best and hope that he can recover in time for Toronto. Thanks, JR, for joining us and for giving us lots of brilliant insight as usual. You can head to the-race.com for your latest news, features and analysis from IndyCar and elsewhere. JR mentioned earlier the interesting Formula One weekend, which had uh, quite a significant number of penalties, which you can read about over on the website. Uh, we also cover Formula E, MotoGP and uh, various aspects of esports as well. So you can go and check all of that out. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. The Athletic.